Not rhetorical. What are you afraid of? Having to fix things. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. What's that? I, you're not the only one that I know of that. Rejection. Rejection. Yeah, that one's a big one. Disappointing others. Disappointing others. Pain. Being alone. Being alone. Degenerating. Losing loved ones. Degenerating. Yeah, that one's big. That's huge. Did everybody hear that? Standing before God and not being accepted. Not hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. That would be one for me. You know, I sit in groups um, and I ask that. And the responses I get are spiders, bees. Um, the more deeper ones might be my parents, right? We are afraid of all kinds of things. So fear being defined is a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, and other things. Whether the threat is real or imagined, and that is huge. It's what we perceive the threat to be. Somebody let a lion in here, let it loose, would we all be afraid? Yeah, most of us would be. Somebody and somebody out of this group probably go, ah, I'm not afraid, and just walk right up to it, right? Not using the fear in the right way or not using wisdom in that process, probably a bad thing. But it's our perception, and our perception can play a large part in fear and how we respond to it. Fear can be connected to many other emotions, such as shame, guilt, anger, rejection. Other words that in our culture that describe fear, and I love this first one, I just love the sound of it, foreboding. Okay, I love that, I don't know why. Um, apprehension, consternation, dismay, dread, terror, fright, panic, horror, trepidation, and plain scared. Fear has both benefit and detriment in our lives. For it, to, um, for, for it to have benefit, we must learn to control how we respond to it. Okay? And in some sense, learn to appropriately manage its effects in our lives. I would almost say very similarly to when we talk about um, managing our finances, managing our relationships, managing our time, right? Managing the response to fear would almost be as important as those things as well. Um, Managing the words that come out of our mouth. That's another huge one. Right? Because this one is dangerous. The detriment to us could be fear controlling our decisions. And I don't mean 
the fear that causes us to make a decision to run from a charging rhino, okay? Or the decision that causes us to keep our distance when we see a bear or a snake. Or even the fear of the Lord, which causes us to do his commands, okay? These are all healthy effects of fear in our lives. When I say detriment, I mean our response to fear that could cause us to perceive the thing that we claim to be afraid of to be that which puts us into a type of slavery. Gosh, going on 30 years now. uh, Some friends and I went hiking up in the mountains. And a guy I'd worked with for almost two years had no idea about him, but he was afraid of heights. I learned this, that when we got to a certain point in our hike, we had to cross a bridge that the canyon was about 500 feet below. And it was a hanging bridge. And I just, of course, I, I don't have much fear of things. But I just zoomed straight across the thing, and I climbed up on the posts and kind of was hanging over the right five to 700-foot drop. It didn't bug me. didn't scare me at all. And I turn around, and here he is and another guy in the group. They're crawling across this bridge, inch by inch, foot by foot. And I'm, I was just, I'd never seen that before. And it wasn't what the perception of this individual that I had. 186 IQ. Very intelligent. Knew how to make decisions on the spot. Could respond to just about anything. And I turn around and reality is hitting me in the face. He lived in a type of slavery, but he was not going to let it stop him. They made it across that bridge. Now, It was just as bad going back, right? But did it stop them? No. A worse detriment would be to respond, a response to fear, which causes our response to draw down a curse from God. And we can do that. What can we be afraid of? Uh, There are over 150 things which psychology refers to people having an unhealthy fear. Public speaking. How many of you actually get up, run up to Trevor and said, I'll do the reading and the prayer? The reading's fine, right? It's the prayer. It's the opening of the ark that scares us to death. And yet, we allow, in a sense, that fear to take over in a congregation that's not going to judge you, that's going to help you move through this. I don't think we're looking at it from the second perspective. I think we're looking at it from the first, right? Being accepted by others, being judged. Absolutely. Stairs. There is such a thing as being afraid of stairs. Water. Cats. Dogs, spiders, bees. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. I remember watching a talk show years and years ago, and I, I would only turn it on if I couldn't figure anything else to do. So I was not a big talk show fan. 
But this one was interesting because the, the talk show was trying to help desensitize people against their worst fears. The woman on that they had on that they were talking to was afraid of cats. And she was talking to the talk show host and about this whole thing, and they're sitting over here. And behind her, 100 feet that way, as they're talking about her fear of cats, and she was not exhibiting any fear whatsoever and that type of thing, somebody walks in from behind the set and is holding this beautiful cat. And they're just patting it, and it's right. It makes a noise, and she hears it. She turned and screamed and got up from her seat and ran to where she perceived safety was at, away from this cat. Whatever it was, whatever she perceived that this cat could do to her, controlled her and kept her in a type of slavery. She had an extreme fear, one which, uh, one which she was really a slave to, and it really, really affected her life. So, where did fear come from? Okay, fear has always been there, right? Nope. Fear and other emotions such as shame, guilt, um, entered into our lives at the fall of mankind into sin with Adam and Eve. So, it wasn't even at the beginning of theirs, it was down the road a bit while they were still in the garden. In Genesis 3, 8 through 10, we find God walking, the story of this, and it's God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve hear him and hide from his presence. Okay? He calls to them and they soon answer. Um, he asks where they were. Adam says they heard him going to and fro in the garden and they hid themselves because they were afraid, because they were naked. kind of like this. It's kind of funny. It's classic human response. Um, okay. Show of hands. Anybody tell on themselves? Didn't really know they were telling on themselves? Everybody's hands should be going up, guys. As kids, think about this. Your parents are asking you about something, right? And you start saying the story, and you're giving everything away which you are guilty of that you didn't do what you were supposed to do, and they're catching you because parents knew the outcome of what the behaviors were going to be. We tell on ourselves. Adam and Eve told on themselves. So God's next question is directed to their response and to their sin, right? And to get them to acknowledge what they have done. And of course, they start making more excuses and so on and blaming others. And, and that's the way a sin nature tends to be. But go back and imagine a relationship with your creator with no fear. No shame. No guilt. Getting in the way. Imagine a relationship with your spouse where no fear, no shame, no guilt, 
are in the way. Fear did not cause their sin, but it did affect their behaviors in relating to the Creator. I would suggest the same issue exists for us. Fear and our response to it affect our relationship and obedience with the Creator. As an example, part of our weekly readings this week came from uh, Numbers 13, 1 through fifteen forty one. And it's the story of spies who were sent into Canaan to view this wonderful land of milk and honey, which God said he was going to give to them. And if you remember, they have already come out of Egypt, or they've just come out of Egypt. God has done ten incredible miracles where the Jews were protected in the process and the Egyptians were made to suffer. So they leave Egypt and they get to the sea and what do they do? They're afraid and they don't know and they're not turning to the one who's saving them. God's going to show them again. What does he do? Opens the sea. They cross on dry land. They get to the other side or getting close to the other side and they hear the roar of thunder, which are the horses. And they're afraid. In the midst of a God who is doing incredible miracles. Again, they get to the other side. The sea closes in on the Egyptian army, kills them all. Right? They celebrate. They're alive. Yay. They go on. They come to Canaan. What did God want them to do the whole time? Kind of the same thing he wants us to do. And we struggle with it. They did too. To trust him. For everything. Right? That he will care for us. So the spies get to the country and they go in. And this is, we're going to kind of read through the story a little bit. Starting at 13.1, I'm only going to read portions of this. Um, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourselves men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, so every tribe is represented. Every one of them should be a leader, which means that they're looked up to by all the other people in the tribes. So Moses sent from them, uh, from the wilderness of uh, Paran, at the um, command of the Lord, all the men who were the heads of the sons of Israel. 14 through 16 starts saying who they are from each tribe. I'm not going to worry about that. If you really want to know, be my guest to go through and read the names. By the way, this is a pattern for humans. Israel is just our example of the lack of trust and so on. Um, Israel wanted people over them. God put judges, right? They complained because 
everybody else had kings. So we want kings, right? And eventually God gave in and gave them kings. I'm afraid we're not going to be like everybody else. Picking up in 17, Moses gives instructions to the spies. I just want you to hear these things so that you know what's happening. When Moses sent, to, uh, sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they uh, are few or many, how is this the land in which they live? Is it good is it, or is it bad? And how are the cities which, the, um, which they live? Are they uh, open camps or are they fortifications? Are they really built up and, and protected well? How is the land? Is it fat or is it lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort um, then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was... Uh, now the time... Excuse me. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness in as far as Rehob at um, Lebo Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron where um, Ahaman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of the Eskol. From there, uh, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men. And that's a big cluster of grapes. It's requiring two men to carry it. Whoa. Um, They carried it on a pole between two men, which with some of the pomegranates and, and the figs that the place was, Called and Valley of Eskol became the cluster which the uh, sons of Israel cut down from there. So they go in, they experience all this stuff, they get some of the the, um, the fruit and what have you, and they're coming back. Their job was to scout, right? Let me look, let me find out what's going on. We get the report in twenty five. And it says this, When they returned from spying out of the land at the end of the forty days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness and Paran and Kadesh, and they brought back word from them and all, to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told, uh, excuse me, thus they told him and said, We went into the land where um, you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey meaning it's very, very rich. And there is, a, there, is, uh, there is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and, and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living in, uh, by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. So they come back out. Remember what they've just come out of, right? And it may be months since, this is ha- since the sea opened up before them, since Egypt was virtually destroyed before them, right? Powerful nation. Egypt was one of that ran a lot in that area at the time. 
So I titled this next section, The Faithful and the Fearful. Because there's a difference between walking in faith and walking in fear. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for it will be will surely, for we will surely overcome it. Caleb and Joshua, as it states later on, are those who are acting in faith. They trust the God that just brought them out of Israel, or brought them into Israel, or brought them out of Egypt and moving into Canaan. God has said he's going to give it to them. They trust that. They believe God. The others don't. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not going to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out, the, uh, so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There, are all, there also we saw the uh, Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so uh, we were in the, and so we were in their sight. Nephilim, just a side note, they're the ones who shove the Edomites out of Petra. That's not an easy task. So I'm sure that these individuals, who were Bedouins at the time, were pretty fierce as far as warriors go. So looking through human eyes and our human abilities, I can understand their fear. Absolutely. But God... Where does he feed into this? And why aren't they looking that direction? Right? Caleb and Joshua are responding with faith and trust in the Lord. And the rest of the spies are responding with fear of what they see, circumstances. Right? The response causes the people to rebel against God and grumble against God and Moses and Aaron, who are God's representatives. And that's... That shows up in 14, and God gets mad. There are consequences for the responses in rebellion and for the leaders who guided them in that response. Okay? God says, that's it, I'm done. The spy's response appears to be a response out of fear of what or who they see in the land. They do not appear to be trusting in the Lord, so their fear causes a congregational Sin. Massive, right? Who are they again? They were picked because they were leaders, seen as leaders over these individuals. So they are held at a much higher account. Fear can spread like wildfire with a strong wind. People can be rational by themselves, but put them in a large group. Fear and emotion will and can take control. So in 14, 11, and 12, we see the consequence of God. The consequence from God is God will take them out and start all over. He's just, he's done. He's going to remove them. 
Moses, I will make an entirely new descendant and people out of you. But Moses intercedes for the people um, with God, but there are still going to be consequences for their lack of faith. The current generation will not enter the land. They will wander the desert for 40 years until the entire generation passes away. Except who? Joshua and Caleb. Those who remained in faith in God. The spies who did not trust God and caused the people to rebel, they died by a plague before the Lord. They were the first ones to go. And then the generation who followed them eventually died off. So why was the consequence so large? Because the reaction of those put into the leadership position caused the congregation to sin. I believe there is a distinction between working through your fear and allowing it to take control. Are there consequences when we make decisions out of fear and it, you know, it's personal, it's, it's private, it's us? Absolutely. And when those fears come out and those decisions that we made and the sin that we have done, when it comes out, is, the, is it a higher level of consequence? Yes. And it just keeps going. Fear tends to be focused on self and self-preservation. As we mentioned in the, in, with the charging rhino issue, that case would be fine, right? Respond in fear. Do it. It's going to set your body up to do what it needs to do to get you out of there. Self-preservation is great. When it comes to a perceived self-preservation that causes disobedience to God, that's not okay. It's a, refle- it's a reflective, it is reflective in our doubt in God when that happens. Fear causes a behavioral response. These responses can be learned to be controlled and even trained uh, to a specific response. In the martial arts, that's what they do is they train a startle response. And by the way, startle is a basic type of fear. But they train the response, which means that we can learn to train responses in other ways. Our best approach to begin to address the fear that uh, would be connected to the issue surrounding God would be this. Begin to study scripture. Learn who God is. Learn how consistent God is. Learn what God desires. Learn how God answers prayers. Learn the importance of human beings according to God. That right there will begin to address so many of the basic fears and even the ones that begin to mass and mass and keep going that humans experience. Good start would be in Genesis 1, 2, 2 through 4. And I think we all know what that is. It's a story of creation. It's the story of God spoke and it happened. It's the story of the impossible taking place because of the words of our God. I'd also like you to look at Psalms 8. 
And it says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I think we've sung that a few times. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Wait, wait. Did he say he displayed man's ability to make things wonderful? No. Because in our comparison, our ability to do anything according, in comparison to his is nothing. With him, it's everything. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease no more. So here's the part. Here's the thinking part. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, you have put in place by your spoken word. What is man that you take thought of him? And then it turns to a reference for the Messiah. And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. This also fits for us. It fits both. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I hope that you're getting a remembrance of what it says in Genesis 2, whereas they've created mankind, and it's saying God has given us dominion over the earth. He has put all of these things in subjection to us. How will we respond to it? So I said the first one was to study scripture. Get to know who our God is and how important we as people are to him. Second, develop a strong prayer life. Keep a journal of prayer, noting those that have been answered. As history has shown us, our ability to remember fades with the next big, huge event. Oh, yeah. Wait, no. What? So we must do things that we can look back to and go, oh, yeah, that's right. That's this. That's one. What's the current thing going on with us? I love our praise times. Why? Reminds me that God continues to work in our lives on a daily, weekly basis. Three, interact with strong believers who can mentor in the faith. You're around others who are like-minded. The conversations that will be had, the struggles 
that they share will build your faith. Versus if you're not, and you're hanging out with people who are common in the world, how much of what they do will build our faith in God? Now, are you supposed to stay completely away from it? No. But we need to be strong, which means we need to continue to have interactions with others who are the Lord's. Bruce has been talking a lot about this one lately. Practicing the presence of God. Everybody doing that now? Practicing the presence? Yeah, exactly. Reminds me of a story. When I thought about that, it reminded me of a story. Anybody remember the story of Peter walking on the water? Yeah. What happened? They were in the boat in the middle. There was a storm. They look out. Here's Jesus walking across the water from the shore to him or to the boat. Peter goes, Lord, let me walk to you. He said, come on. He gets out of the boat and he starts walking across the water. And then all of a sudden, fear hits. And he realizes where he's at and what's going on because he stopped looking here at the Lord and he looked at his current circumstances. And what happened? He sank. Right? And then what did he do? Lord, help me. What if he would have kept his eyes on Jesus the whole time? Do you think he did that later in life? Considering the stuff that he was able to accomplish because of the Lord? I think so. I think it's a learning process. But imagine, Peter walked on water. And then the last one I have, and I'm sure there's more of this, practice what God commands. Note what you are learning. Note the struggles. Note God's faithfulness and the blessings that occur. All of those things are going to motivate us to keep moving forward. We're not going to read it for time purposes, but Joshua 2, 1 through 24 is another one of the weekly readings. Um, And it's interesting that those two are together because this gives the story of another group of spies that 40 years later after the first group who have learned who God is and developed trust in him and go in to spy out Canaan. They get a completely different outcome than the first time the spies went into Canaan. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage you to take both stories, get two Bibles, read the story and read the story, and compare and contrast the differences between the first set and the second set. There was a song that my father used to listen to often, and it rings out through my head as I think of these texts and what this topic is. And it is, and you guys, I'm sure you guys, most of you are familiar with this, is His Eye is on the Sparrow. And it was written in 1905, and the lyricist was Sevilla uh, Martin, and composer is Charles Gabriel. And the, the lyrics are this, and I'm not going to read them all, but I'm going to read some. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should I, my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, I know he watches me. And then it goes to the refrain, which is, I sing because I'm happy, I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. These next, this next verse is the one I want particular, us to particularly pay attention to. 
Let not your heart be troubled. His tender word I hear. And resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. How do we get rid of our fear and doubts? We focus on the Lord. Though by the path he leadeth, only the next step I see. That's faith. Could I take one step and then stop? Yeah. Because I most likely will be focused on the circumstances around and allowing fear to begin to get to me. Let me tell you, you start falling because of fear, you start sinning because of fear, it's going to keep expanding and open doors for you to do other sins and other sins and other sins. It's going to keep going. So if you're struggling with fear, this passage, is, uh, this passage in Matthew is where it comes from. The song is drawn from. It talks about your value as a child of God. And it's Matthew 10, 29 and 30. Just the two verses. My Bible is trying to go further, quicker. There we go. And it says this. Are not two sparrows sold for one cent? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. What that means is, every, I, it's unclear about this for a long time, but every time a sparrow lights, who's seen sparrows? How often do they hit the ground? Like every second and a half? Occasionally they rest, but they're bouncing all over the place, right? They're flying and going to another place. Every time they touch down, God is aware of it. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. In Matthew 28, 16 through 20, Jesus commands the disciples, and this is another part of the weekly readings, but I think it fits with all of this. He commands the disciples, and by proxy, us, his children, to go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he commanded So what does that look like? This cannot be done by someone who is plagued by fear. Specifically a fear that causes disobedience to God. You cannot make disciples if you are in that state. Making disciples means that there is preparation, there is training, And preparation and training will create competency, right? Somebody who is competent, do they tend to act in fear? No. 
This training and preparation and establishing competency removes fear. If we look at our children and how, how do we effectively get them from point A to point Z, right? not A to B because that's a short alphabet. We need to get them the whole way. It requires the following. It requires a plan. And if you have not sat down and developed a plan to get your children to be autonomous, God-fearing, and when I mean God-fearing, I mean that they're chasing, loving his commands, okay? Um, competent ability to think through things and make decisions, then you need to develop a plan to do it. Second, you need to execute that plan, which means that there is going to be teaching happening, okay? And that monitoring the progress that is done. And then you need to keep teaching and reteaching until that information is understood and executed effectively. How will you know it's executed effectively? Because you're monitoring the progress. The progress on the plan that you have that establishes goals for them to be able to attain. Revise the plan as necessary until the goal is reached. We did this with heaven, by the way. Another thing it'll take is stamina. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over 18 to 20 years of challenging, helping them walk through it, backing off, allowing them to walk through it, stumbling, catching them, helping them learn from what their problem is, allowing them to keep moving through it, right? Eventually, their safety net will not be there. So they have to be able to be where they need to be when they need to be there. So are we able to do this job? For us to do it, it takes preparation of self through continuous study and practice. Practice what we are learning. That means we're going to struggle in the experiences that we have. We're going to make the mistakes. We're going to try to say, hey, this mistake is here. Sometimes we're going to say, don't go there. This mistake is here. You're going to stumble and hurt. Sometimes we're going to go, yeah, I remember having to make that mistake. I remember having to learn that lesson. And it was painful. Acknowledge and stretch our own abilities as we face our fears and challenge (laughs) ourselves. We have to do the same for them. Everything that we're doing for us in this process, we ultimately have to do for them. Because what if we haven't reached that goal ourselves? Let me ask you a question. You guys know that I, I, I've taught martial arts and learned under Professor Stokes and so on. Let's say I didn't. And I said, hey, Orlando, I'm going to pick on you. Come on, man. Let's go meet Monday night, and I'll start teaching you all kinds of martial arts stuff. And I have no experience. I have no practice and no struggle. Are you likely to learn much? Are you likely to get hurt? Are you likely to have fear about coming back? (laughs) And I would say that would be a healthy fear, right? 
How can we raise our kids if we haven't done that? We're not going to know it all, but we, it's a continual process of learning. Acknowledge and stretch our own ability as we face our fears. Teach, which is sharing our knowledge and wisdom. And which also means we have to know our student. We have to know how they learn. So now we have to teach our student to do all of that, to prepare themselves to practice what uh, they're learning and to pay attention to the struggle and learn the experience. We have to teach them to acknowledge and stretch their abilities and face, face their fears. And we have to teach them sharing how to share their knowledge and wisdom because the reality is the one who learns the most is the one who continues to teach. So do we want our children to teach? Oh, yes, we do. Minimum their own children. And that will expand who they are and their ability. Student will put their trust in the parent or teacher first. Learn this through the martial arts a lot too. They will expand and start with you and they begin to build that trust and, and um, bonding with you. Child does the same. They trust you. Because you've been there. You're doing it. Okay, I know you're not going to try to put me out there and let me get hurt. What happens when it's in a situation where the parent doesn't care about what happens to the kid and they're going to do whatever and the kid learns a continually pattern of if I follow this person, I'm going to get hurt. Begin to build up walls for adults, for authority figures. Once that relationship is there with you, they are going to watch because you will be modeling all that they're going to be learning, good and bad. Eventually, that trust and that relationship, based on what you're teaching and how they are seeing you, will expand to God. And ultimately, we want ourselves in that sense removed or secondary to God. And those things have to happen. So, when you begin as a, well, when do you begin? As young as possible. So, that means that there is some level of a developmental knowledge that needs to be here. Right? Can I teach a two-year-old to drive? Well, I could just modify a few things, you know, bring the accelerator up and the brake up and put a booster seat, and if I just hand them the keys, they'll get it. Hope not. So, you will also experience some fear due to inexperience. Am I doing this correctly? Will come up. So, just this week, I made this comment to Robin. Will I ever not be concerned about heaven out driving and doing her own thing? Guess what Robin's response was? Nope, you will never not be concerned about it. Nature of the relationship, right? My thoughts after her response? You know, I've raised her the best I can to seek the Lord, to make wise decisions, to be careful and be observant. I must trust that he, meaning God, will keep her safe and not let her go according to his will. Fear 
worry, and concern dissipated because my focus was back on God. Fear is a powerful emotion, but through our effort and submission to God, we can learn to control our response to it so that God is glorified through us and in the generations to follow. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, creator of heaven and earth. Father, I'm so grateful that you are who you are. And that we are as important to you as your word tells us. It would be awful to walk through this world wanting to trust you and not knowing that we have value in your eyes. Because that would mean you didn't really care. But you do. Father, help us to live each day closer to you by following your commandments, to have a heart that desires you. Help us to train our children that way. And the individuals that cross our paths that you have placed there, Father, let us get into their lives as we can and mentor them as you have instructed. Again, making disciples that are bold and have the correct fears. In your holy and blessed name. Amen. Questions?